To make a donation, visit biblicallycorrectpodcast.org slash donate. And if you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, and subscribe. Thank you for your support. These are the absolute worst ways to interpret Scripture. Welcome to the Biblically Correct Podcast. Shalom, y'all. This is the Biblically Correct Podcast, teaching biblical correctness in a biblically incorrect world. My name is Kevin Jeffrey. I'm a Jewish follower of the Messiah Yeshua, Jesus, and I love teaching the Scriptures. Have you ever wondered why there are so many different denominations, or why there's so much disagreement between believers in Messiah? Well, aside from pride, self-absorption, and stubbornness, at the root of it all is nothing more than just bad, inconsistent Bible interpretation. Too many believers fail to transcend worldly thinking and instead process the Bible through their own illogical reasoning and subjective points of view. Too many of us impose our own ideas and frames of reference on the Bible rather than letting the scriptures just speak for themselves. In previous episodes, I talked about the many right ways to understand the Bible, like reading the word in context, explaining scripture with scripture, accepting the plain sense of the text, recognizing the difference between literal and figurative speech, and always answering every single Bible question with the only biblically correct response, what do the scriptures say? Well, today I want to look at some of the absolute worst ways to interpret the Bible, ways that are guaranteed to always get you the wrong answer 100% of the time. And sadly, these aren't some obscure interpretation methods that we only find on some guy's random wacky blog on the internet. Even some of the most well-known teachers and established doctrines rely upon some of these types of bad Bible interpretation. So let's jump right in with a couple of the worst interpretation methods that I briefly mentioned in a previous teaching, beginning with cherry-picking. Now, cherry-picking is the practice of ignoring or dismissing relevant passages that oppose a point you're trying to make or a doctrine you're trying to defend, and only using verses that appear to support your position. So, take predestination versus free will, for example. The disagreement here is essentially between whether God has given us free will to choose to follow him, or if he predetermined we would before we were even born. Now, predestination, or predetermination as the MJLT puts it, is explicitly taught by Paul. For instance, Ephesians 1.5 says, He has predetermined us to the adoption as sons through Yeshua the Messiah to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Paul also says in Romans 8.29-30, Those whom he foreknew, he also predetermined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predetermined, he also called and declared righteous and glorified. So that's pretty straightforward. It's God's will to predetermine whether we will be called, adopted as sons, and conformed to Yeshua's image. So if we simply stop here with Paul and cherry-pick these verses, we could then conclude that the only way we can come to follow God is because he predetermines that for us. So what do we do then with Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 19 through 20, where Moses says, to choose life so that you will live, to love Adonai your God, to listen to his voice, and to stick close to him, for he is your life and the length of your days. So Moses says to choose to love God. But are we really free to make that choice? Moses seems to think so. I mean, why the exhortation 
if it's already a foregone conclusion. But if it's our choice whether or not to love God, how does that square with Paul? Well, if you're dead set on predestination only, then you might suggest that you were predestined to make that choice. But I'm pretty sure a predetermined choice is an oxymoron. And you don't want to be an oxymoron, do you? (laughs) Now, I'll grant that the free will concept in Scripture is more assumed than stated, unlike predetermination. And it's just as easy to be myopic about this subject when you're coming from the free will only side of it. But that doesn't change the fact that there are plenty of verses which indicate that we have the choice whether or not to follow God and be saved. The only way you can get to a theology that says it's completely out of our hands or it's only in our hands is to cherry pick your supporting verses. The fact of the matter is, Scripture demonstrates a tension between God's predetermination and man's will, making it far more complex than a simple either-or proposition. And this tension is perfectly encapsulated in John 6.44, where Yeshua says, No one is able to come to me if the Father who sent me does not draw him. And in Yaakov, James 4.8, where he says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So no one is able to come to God unless God draws him. But if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. So assuming that both of these statements are true, which they are, then who draws first? Does God making us able to come to him mean that he's making us unable to resist him? Or does it just make it possible? Is there a definitive order of events? Or is it that one thing simply can't happen without the other? Or perhaps more to the point, is the entire question moot? Since according to scripture, there will never be a salvation in which God chooses us, but we don't also choose him. Now, my goal here isn't to get to the bottom of the debate, because frankly, if we're not cherry picking, it ought to be obvious that God simultaneously predetermined and allows us the freedom to choose him. It's both equally. That's the only way to reconcile verses like these without doing a bunch of philosophical gymnastics. And while that may be intellectually unsatisfying to you, that doesn't make it any less true. So the debate itself of whether it's only predestination or only free will really isn't important. What's important is to not cherry pick the verses that seem to so obviously support your own beliefs, and then to ignore or reinterpret the opposing verses based on the theology you've built or accepted as a result of cherry-picking. Next up is proof-texting, which is similar to cherry-picking. Proof-texting uses isolated and sometimes unrelated out-of-context verses to support a belief or doctrine. So let's consider the Christian idea that the Sabbath was moved from Saturday to Sunday, from the seventh day of the week to the first day. Well, one proof text for this is Acts chapter 20, verse 7, where it says, And on the first day of the week, when we had been gathered together to break bread, Paul was discussing with them. So how we get to a Sunday Sabbath from here is this. On the first day of the week means not the Jewish Sabbath. We means all Christians everywhere from now on. Gathered together means going to church. Break bread means take communion. And Paul was discussing with them means Paul preached a sermon. 
So according to this understanding, Acts chapter 20, verse 7 means that all the early believers stopped going to church on the Jewish day and started going to church to take communion and hear a sermon on the Christian day. Ta-da! Now, aside from reading all these Christian concepts back into the verse, where this goes horribly wrong is in three ways. First, the verse is taken completely out of context. Paul had simply gathered with the believers to share a meal and talk with them because he was getting ready to leave the next day. There's nothing here that indicates the gathering was related to the Sabbath or that what they were doing even closely resembles Christianity's concept of church. Second, it assumes that because this gathering was on the first day of the week, that no gatherings can ever be held again on that yucky, obsolete Jewish seventh day. And third, the passage is completely unrelated to the concept of the Sabbath. All it does is mention a day of the week, which happens to be the first day, and a gathering of believers, neither of which address or contradict any of the scriptures that command the setting aside of the seventh day as a day of rest. So, in order to prove from this text that the Sabbath, the Shabbat, was moved from the seventh day of the week to the first, you have to take it out of context, completely misrepresent what it says, and ignore all the other texts that say such things as Exodus 31, 15, and 17. Six days work will be done, but on the seventh day is a holy Shabbat Shabbaton to Adonai between me and the sons of Israel. It is a sign forever. Not just until Jesus ascends to heaven, not just until the birth of the church or the dispensation of grace, but forever. So using Acts 20 verse 7 to say that the Sabbath was changed from Saturday to Sunday is an example of proof texting. The next really bad way of interpreting scripture that I want to touch on is by using what's called an argument from silence. An argument from silence draws a conclusion not from what the scriptures say, but from what they don't say. In other words, you're using an argument from silence when you attempt to assert that something is true based on the absence or lack of evidence that it's not. So, for example, Mark and John don't mention the virgin birth in their accounts of Yeshua's life. The argument from silence says that Mark and John either didn't know about the virgin birth or they didn't believe in it. Mark and John's silence about the virgin birth is viewed as evidence of their lack of knowledge or belief, and this in turn is meant to cast doubt on whether the virgin birth actually happened. But just because they didn't write about it doesn't mean we can assume their motives or reasons for not including it. Mark may have felt that wasn't part of the story he wanted to focus on. Maybe John, in his unconventional way, alluded to it in his first chapter. We can't assume that Matthew or Luke invented the virgin birth out of whole cloth just because Mark and John are silent about it. Here's another one. There's no so-called church membership explicitly mentioned in the Bible. The argument from silence then says that it's wrong to have church or congregational membership. The Bible's silence on congregational membership is viewed as evidence that if God intended us to have congregational membership, he would have said so. But no matter what your view on church membership is, you can't base it on the silence from Scripture. Because by that logic, There'd be no churches for people to be members of, since the Bible is equally silent about the modern concept of church. And one last one that's rather timely, Yeshua, Jesus, never spoke about homosexuality. The argument from silence, therefore, says that Yeshua doesn't consider homosexuality to be a sin. 
Yeshua's silence about homosexuality is taken as evidence that if he had considered it to be wrong, he would have said so. This argument from silence also functions as a kind of proof text, which then ignores everything that Yeshua said about natural marriage and sexual immorality, as well as what the Bible says elsewhere explicitly concerning homosexuality. Not to mention, Yeshua also didn't talk about abortion. Does that mean that Yeshua thought it was okay to purposely end a precious unborn life? Not a chance. Yeshua's silence concerning homosexuality then can't be used to argue that he didn't consider it a sin. So, using the fact that Mark and John never mentioned the virgin birth as evidence they didn't believe in it, or the Bible not talking about church membership as a reason against it, or Yeshua never explicitly mentioning homosexuality as a defense for it, are all examples of arguments from silence. Now, the rest of the bad interpretation methods I want to mention today are less formal than cherry-picking, proof-texting, and making an argument from silence, but can be just as destructive to the word. The next one I want to talk about I call, That Was Then, This Is Now. Basically, the way this works is, when you come across a passage of scripture that you find troublesome or irrelevant, you can just brush it aside by saying, well, that command was written only to that particular culture. It's thousands of years later now, and that civilization no longer exists. So that command is obsolete, and we can just ignore it. Probably the most obvious and globally applied version of this is the way most believers relate to the Torah, the law. And of course, there's also a proof text for that, Hebrews 8.13. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, allegedly referring to the Torah, and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. I'll totally debunk that as a proof text in a later teaching. But a specific example of this would be 1 Corinthians 11.14-15 where Paul's addressing men and women's hair length. He says, Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man indeed has long hair, it is a dishonor to him, but a woman, if she has long hair, it is a glory to her, because the hair has been given to her for a covering. Now, we can discuss what constitutes long hair. I mean, some people might consider my hair to be long. But the point of the passage is that women's hair should be longer than men's. Men shouldn't have long hair like a woman's, and women shouldn't have short hair like a man. And Paul gives a reason for this. Does not even nature itself teach you? So, is this command irrelevant? Well, first of all, does nature only exist in first century Corinth? If it doesn't, then nature is still teaching us that there are differences between men and women. Secondly, If we're relegating chapter 11 to the first century, then why not also forget about 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15? Have you not known that your bodies are members of Messiah? Having taken then the members of the Messiah, should I make them members of a prostitute? Let it not be. Well, that was then, this is now. The culture is totally different. So we can just ignore Paul telling us not to engage with prostitutes. You see how this way of interpreting quickly puts things on a slippery slope? Now, granted, there are certain commands that simply can't be kept now, such as those that are tied to a functioning temple and priesthood. But that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be kept if they could be. Who are we to decide that certain portions of our ancient foreign scriptures are just too far removed to be relevant, while other portions are just as relevant now as they were then?
We also get in big trouble with our interpretation of Scripture when we over-personalize what we're reading. Now, we know the best way to understand Scripture is to ask the number one question, what do the Scriptures say? And once we find that out, it's then reasonable to also ask the follow-up, what does this Scripture mean? And then to rely on Scripture to explain itself to us. But where we wander off into the field of bad, unreliable interpretation is when the question, what does this scripture mean, gets morphed into, what does this scripture mean to you? You might have encountered this, for example, in the context of a group Bible study, where the facilitator reads a verse or a passage of scripture and then turns to the group and asks, what does this verse mean to you? Then people start to offer their opinions about what the verse means. And everyone's just supposed to nod their head in polite agreement before offering up their own ideas. I think the idea behind this is to try to get people to see the relevance of the verse and then to make personal application in their lives. At least, I would hope that's the idea. But while a given passage of Scripture can and does impact each person differently and carry different emotional and spiritual weight at various times of our lives, we don't have the ability or the right to approach the text individualistically and change its objective meaning to match our subjective situations. An example of this would be to take Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those in Messiah Yeshua and ask, what does this mean to you? One person might say, well, to me, it means that I should stop feeling guilty about missing my father's funeral. Another person might say, to me, it means that I should stop condemning myself when others criticize me. And while it's true that those people should come to terms with the issues they're facing and that in Yeshua, we can, that's not what Romans 8.1 means, nor is this the kind of personal application that should flow from the verse. The context of the verse and the way Paul uses condemnation elsewhere tells us that Paul isn't talking about feelings of condemnation, but literally being condemned to death because of the sin in our flesh. So there is no meaning to you or meaning to me in Romans 8.1 or any other verse. Reading the Bible isn't like trying to decipher song lyrics or an abstract painting. It only means what it says. By asking, what does this scripture mean to you? It can't help but cause us to take personal application too far and lead us to indulge our minds, project our own personal experience onto the text, and individualize the scriptures beyond what God intended for them to mean. And finally, I think it's worth revisiting a highly problematic area of Bible interpretation that I briefly covered back in episode 5 called spiritualization. We spiritualize when we believe that God's shown us a new and spiritual meaning for something that has a biblically fixed definition. The two examples I previously used were how Christian theology spiritualizes Israel whenever it replaces Israel with the church, and when we make ourselves the you in passages such as Isaiah 54, 17, no weapon that is formed against you will prosper. Rather than just gleaning the spiritual principle from the text, we take it out of context and appropriate it for ourselves. The example I want to use today to demonstrate spiritualization is the supposed symbolism of the tabernacle otherwise known as the Tent of Meeting, where the priests of Israel performed their sacrificial work. Now, don't misunderstand me. The Bible absolutely contains symbolism. 
For example, both Yeshua and Paul use leaven as a symbol for hypocrisy and sin. But that symbolism was made explicit by the scriptures themselves. All I'm saying is that just because the Bible contains symbolism doesn't then mean we have an open invitation to spiritualize. So with that said, let's start with the 2008 ESV Study Bible. You know how much I love study Bibles. And the note on Exodus 25.1 through 31.17. It says this about the tabernacle. The tabernacle is seen as a tented palace for Israel's divine king. He is enthroned on the Ark of the Covenant. The other symbolic dimension is Eden. The tabernacle, like the Garden of Eden, is where God dwells, and various details of the tabernacle suggest it is a mini-Eden. These parallels include the east-facing entrance guarded by cherubim, the tree of life, lampstand, and the tree of knowledge, the law. So the writer of this commentary sees the tabernacle as symbolizing the Garden of Eden, because he says the details of the tabernacle suggest parallels. For example, he says the east-facing entrance of the tabernacle is guarded by cherubim. By this, I assume he's referring to the cherubim that were embroidered in the curtains that made up the tabernacle. But as far as I can tell, that wasn't the case for the entrance curtain. But even if it were, how is embroidery like guarding? The author also mentions the lampstand, the menorah, and in it he says he sees the tree of life. I suppose because both the menorah and trees have branches? Not sure where he's going with that. And he also connects the law to the garden's tree of knowledge. I guess he means the stone tablets that are in the Ark of the Covenant. I don't really see the connection on this one either, especially since Proverbs 3.18 refers to wisdom from God, not knowledge as a tree of life. So, sure, maybe if you squint your eyes and look kind of sideways at the tabernacle, you can see a glimpse of a mini Eden, but I'm not buying it. He's trying to spiritualize the tabernacle in a way that scripture never even comes close to suggesting. The next example comes from a website called neverthirsty.org. In this article, the author is explaining how the different parts of the tabernacle and its furniture symbolize God's redemption plan. You may have heard things like this before. Here's what he says. Bronze symbolizes sin, and the gold symbolizes God. The bronze altar was the place of sacrifice. Jesus died on an altar. It was called the cross. The bronze laver was filled with water, and its base was made from the women's mirrors of highly polished bronze, Exodus 38.8. This is a great picture of a person who trusts Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. While the mirror at the bottom reminds us that we will still see our true sinful self, Romans 7.24, it is also comforting because the symbolism reminds us that God knows we are not yet perfect in this life. The gold lampstand speaks of the one who revealed the Father to us, Jesus, the light giver, Matthew 11.27. And the table of showbread was made of acacia wood and overlaid with gold. The wood speaks of Jesus' humanity and the gold of his deity, Jesus, the God-man. So basically, this author is simply stating that certain parts of the tabernacle symbolize certain things that are supposed to remind us of salvation. And while it's certainly a good thing to be reminded of that, I'm having trouble seeing it here. Because I can't find anywhere in the Bible that implies, for example, that bronze symbolizes sin or gold symbolizes God. And I get that Yeshua shed his blood on the cross and 
animal's blood was shed on the altar, but the cross is never referred to in the Bible as an altar. Now, the explanation about the lampstand is a fun one. See if you can follow. He's essentially saying that lamps give light, light reveals things in the darkness, and the Son reveals the Father, according to Matthew eleven twenty seven. Therefore, the lampstand must be symbolic of Yeshua. This is what they call in logic a non sequitur, which is Latin for it does not follow. It's one of those logical fallacies I briefly mentioned a few episodes ago. But while there's nothing spiritual about being illogical, it definitely makes these kinds of wild leaps possible, which I guess also explains the idea that the table for the showbread is a symbol of Yeshua's dual nature, with the wood representing his humanity. So once again, none of these explanations can be corroborated by Scripture. While the tabernacle was surely the place of sacrifice and redemption for Israel, its fulfillment in Yeshua doesn't mean that everything about it can also be symbolic of the eternal redemption that we have through him. And finally, just for laughs, I found this gem on a website called spiritofthescripture.com, which is clearly out in left field. Here's what he says about the Ark of the Covenant. The true Ark of the Covenant rests atop your shoulders. More specifically, the Ark represents your brain. Now let's break down the image of the Ark. Two cherubims faced each other on top of the lid. There was one on the left and one on the right. Now consider that your brain is made up of a left and right hemisphere. The covering of your brain is the cerebrum. So just as the cherubim covered something significant inside the Ark, the brain, so too does the left and right cerebrum cover some very important glands that serve as a link between our physical and spiritual natures. One such component is the pineal gland, also known as the third eye. This is what Jesus referenced when he stated, The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. Matthew 6.22 Now that's good stuff right there. Definitely get your theology from the internet, ladies and gentlemen. Now, of course, that's total nonsense, but it does help me make a point. (laughs) When we're spiritualizing, where do we draw the line? Who's to say that this guy's explanation is any less plausible than the others? None of them are able to support their symbolism from Scripture. Now, you could just say there's nothing wrong with spiritualizing and finding symbolism this way, and I'm just not spiritual enough to be able to see these kinds of connections. But that's exactly my point. If we're sticking close to the scriptures to tell us what's true and what's real, then our spirituality is tied to and limited by what the scriptures say. We're supposed to judge what we think God is showing us by the objective, unwavering standard of scripture. And if we're not, then you and I aren't practicing the same faith. A boat equipped with an anchor is still a boat but a boat that's blown about and completely unmoored will just stay adrift forever. And by the way, the scriptures do tell us what the tabernacle symbolizes. It symbolizes the true Mishkan, the true tabernacle, which the master set up, not man. The greater and more perfect Mishkan, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, through which Messiah came. Hebrews 8.2 and 9.11. And that kind of symbolism is good enough for me. When it comes to understanding the Bible, 
we're often our own biggest obstacle. Regardless of any good intentions, by treating the scriptures as either a spiritual playground or an intellectual puzzle, we make ourselves deaf, dumb, and blind to the plain and simple truth of God's word. Whether we're ignoring or dismissing relevant passages by cherry-picking, using isolated or out-of-context verses by proof-texting, drawing conclusions based on the absence of evidence with an argument from silence, brushing aside commands from then because the culture is different now, over-personalizing scripture according to what it means to us, or infusing things that have a biblically fixed definition with a new and spiritualized meaning, we're contributing to our own biblical ignorance and being destructive to God's perfect and precious word. Our ability to correctly understand the Bible depends upon our commitment to just let the word of God speak. Let's stop trying to hear what clearly isn't there and seek instead to listen only to what the scriptures say. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Biblically Correct Podcast. If you like this episode and want to see us make more, then we need your help. Visit our website at biblicallycorrectpodcast.org to support the work of Perfect Word Ministries and MJMI with your much-needed donations. And of course, don't forget to like, share, comment, subscribe, and ring the bell to receive notifications whenever a new episode is posted. If you have any questions about this teaching, or if there are any other topics you'd like to see me cover, leave me a comment or shoot me an email at kevin at perfectword.org. That's kevin at perfectword.org. Until next time, remember that every scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for refuting, for setting a right, for instruction that is in righteousness, so that the man of God may be fully equipped, having been completed for every good act. Shalom. Shalom.